0: You're listening to The Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Akron, are you I'm teaching at university at the moment? Yeah, yeah,
1: I do. I do. Um, I'm teaching the, uh, in some ways, the opposite to you, Drew. Uh, I'm teaching <laughs> of uh, the uh, I'm drawn to it the way someone may be drawn to like a strong smell of, uh, something rotten. Right. I I teach corporations law and property. Uh, So (laughs) if you wanted to know the answer, how is inequality achieved? Right. How is it maintained stabilized? It's through the mundane, boring laws that I have here. Right. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, it's done right out in the open. Right. Right. And it's, uh, it's done through these, um, Uh, intellectual models right that are designed and so much effort goes into making them look natural property and corporations are those two areas where I would say the labor of uh, naturalization right the political labor of naturalization right um, is there's more effort into making it look natural than making it look coherent
2: Right right, right, right. They're willing <laughs> yeah, to sacrifice coherence. Yeah, just so everyone takes it for granted. Right, that's, that's what that's,
1: matters. That's right. it. As if it was always going to be this way. Right, right. It's inevitable and it's natural. The way we sometimes right. teach it, you'd almost be forgiven that we would. Uh, if you walk in the way we talk about it, we talk about the weather, right? Meteorology. Look, right. clouds happen. Right, clouds right. happen.
2: <laughs> water right. comes down. Right,
1: right. It goes on top of my head. Not much we can do about gravity, can we folks, right. Right? Right, uh, right? That's the way we talk about it, right? And what it does is it completely takes it out of the realm of moral agency.
2: Right. And it yep. makes
1: it into natural forces of the sort that we study in the physical world.
2: Right. Right.
0: So right. Akram, we're keen yep. to have people actually listen to this episode. So I might not introduce you as teaching corporate law at the University <laughs> of Western Australia. Um, but when, when I asked, like, how I, do you have a bio to read? I loved your response. I thought it was very Zizekian um, that bios are uh, a neoliberalized uh, sense of a human being. Um, yeah. So what would you like me to uh, mention in terms of... Uh, what often people mention is that you were young Australian of the year in, is mm. that
1: 2014?
0: Uh, 2013. Yeah. Yeah.
1: 2013. Uh, and,
2: uh, and I've got some white um, hairs now. so Youngish.
1: Uh, <laughs> <and pushing laughs> out, how many white hairs do you need before you can stop? You stop saying young. I don't know. I'm, yeah. um, I'm waiting <laughs> double digits. Maybe I don't know. Triple. Digits. And I'm
0: aware you've spent your last uh, 16 years of adult life yep. in tertiary <laughs> institutions, uh, both teaching and learning. Um, I've been teaching for
1: about 16 years, being a student for about 16 years. Yeah. So I've been, uh,
0: in fact, uh, I've never known... Let me see if I can get this right, Akram. Initially, um, uh, were you doing biology initially? That's it,
1: that's it, yeah. So I did human biology and anatomy, uh, specialising in neuroscience, and uh, I taught in that for 10 years. And then you went... Uh, from that to law? Uh, yes. So uh, one of the one of the ways that it happened is um, I saw uh, a, a very good friend of mine, I just watched the way he was able to break the world down analytically, right? He was able to chop everything down into its consistent parts and then rearrange it at his pleasure. And I thought Are that's we talking a real trick.
0: So, uh, yeah. no, uh, no, no, I thought... no.
1: I didn't know Michael at this stage. I didn't know Michael. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and uh, the... This, this friend, um, basically, uh, it's actually kind of tragic the way it all panned out, but nevertheless, this friend was so keen to help me out that he spent 200 of his own dollars because of the late fee, and he actually enrolled me into law because I never really wanted to do it. I said, uh, no, it's way too scary for someone like me. So he took a leap of faith on my behalf right he paid all the late fees for it right this almost like a it's got a parable character to it right and uh, <laughs> we we go uh, to the office he puts down the 200 dollars right we're we're late for like a month right we're so late, and the university hates lateness right it's like yeah, yeah. did you murder somebody yes it's all right but you were late right that's who are oh, you get out that's a you get scene. Yeah. murderers yeah. we can put up with but late people, oh right. That's the office understand to <laughs> say. I hope this doesn't go This bit we can keep to ourselves. <laughs> uh, because they're all they're also get back to you. Wait a second, Akram. We heard that you you think we abhor people who are late over murderers. Uh, Akram, you should know we abhor <laughs> them equally. Uh, <laughs> you should have said that. Uh, it's I know it's gonna cause issues. Um, but the uh this friend got me into law and um the moment I started getting into it and really getting into it, I realized this was the language of power in our society, right? Uh-huh. This was the language of command. This was, um, we're all positivists. And positivism is a, is a philosophical tradition uh, in law that says, the law is whatever the sovereign says the law is, mm. right? It's, it's, it's got and, no and there's no sovereign above the
0: sovereign. Above the sovereign.
1: There's no sovereign above the sovereign, right? It's whomever we give power to, and then they in turn tell us what is the law, right? Yeah. And the um, the fascinating bit about all of this is none of this is controversial. In fact, most lawyers are positive. We accept, right? We accept that man is a prosthetic God, right? We accept that. And we. Uh, uh, we worship right, our own collective self uh, and the person that we vest that, that power into is judges and the legislature and whatever they say, that is law. And I went, wow, if that's, that's the language of power. Uh, that's the public language of power. And I thought this would be fascinating to learn more about. And alongside my human biology and anatomy degree, I did it. And uh, then, I got, then I went to Singapore. I uh, actually on a religion and society scholarship and this is around yeah, the time that you and i would get to know each other jared um t- and once I when was when we Singapore- first
0: meeting you started t- mm. t- telling me um uh, I, I remember being impressed drew you like this um akram asked me about miroslav Volf, and i was like have yeah. you read Volf?" and yeah, you're like yeah, yeah. no i i've met him oh <laughs> I yeah yeah like, then i met him as I well like, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know. That's, yeah. um, and I, I hadn't spent any time with Miroslav at the time. I, I was I was very jealous. Um, so t- tell us what you know were doing, doing there as Drew responds to his little ones in the background. Oh, that's horrible. so cute. Um,
1: he was um, actually he, interestingly enough. You you bring him up because there was a way that he thought about the world that I found very attractive in the sense that he was saying something that nobody else was saying he was using a vocabulary that no one else was using in the public space. Mm. Right. Um, he had a critique of our society that no one else had. Um, and this really gets to the heart of, I suppose, what I wanted to have a chat with you about. And that is um, the physical sciences, the social sciences, they're really good at critiquing everything except the economic life that we find ourselves in right? They can talk about everything except really get in public, right? There's some really phenomenally good um, academic works on, particularly from sociology, uh, which is what I'm doing my PhD in at the moment, on um, economics. However, that is, doesn't have very, besides a few exceptions, doesn't really have wide distribution. But even more importantly, you never hear those sort of people in the public domain talking about the economy from a social perspective. The Mm -hmm. closest thing we have and the uh, perhaps the most sophisticated language for publicly critiquing the relationship between the social and the economic right uh, comes from a, from theology right mm. Theology, I would say is probably one of the last bastions right where there is still a vocabulary rich enough uh, to deal with uh, uh, to deal with neoliberalization and I, I kind of deal with it. i, I don 't want neoliberalization to be this fuzzy thing. basically, the definition that I go by is. Uh, The idea that all of our problems can be solved uh, and understood, not just solved, but even understood right through the economics lens. So it's Mm. politics by economics right? Mm -hmm. The idea that everything can be brought down into variables and this is where the marginal revolution comes into its own, right? The idea that you can just, everything's just a hierarchy of preferences, right? And what we do is we just, most of us get to choose the top two or three preferences with one other people and that is how you socially, sociopolitically coordinate your whole life. That Mm. is actually, in a lot of ways, that's a really attractive, simplified mental model that you can use to talk about the world. Problem is, that's not how the world works, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that's the. It's so much more complicated. That's so much more messy than that. And we don't really have a critique of that in the physical sciences, certainly not. And even in well, the social sciences, are very
0: limited. The way it works is the fact that we invest so much to make invisible um, yes. Yes. that this is the way it works. Um, the, right. the, the amount of work, um, uh, the amount of resources that go into this just being the default settings for reality. Absolutely. Uh, is astronomical and, and this this interesting my, drew and I um, have been talking the last couple of weeks, like with the pandemic, is mm-hmm. i mean suddenly we have uh, boris Johnson um, yes. uh, socializing public transport um, uh, we have Donald Trump talking about um, uh, taking control like it 's a, a wartime, yeah. uh, and people right. are raising questions about the upcoming u s election and will that go ahead as as normal? Suddenly, all the things that have been invisible, um, there has been, uh, like people throw around the term that this is an apocalyptic moment. The word apocalypse actually means an unveiling or a revealing. Yeah, that's very, again, that's where theology gives us this language. It's been
1: here before. Theology has been here before. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if crisis is endemic to capitalism, right, which it is, right, uh-huh. uh, then we've always had we've always had a critique that's been available, right, of this uh, of our system, of why we run into the particular moments that we do, and a way out of it as well. However, that needs to have enough of a visibility in the center to be able to express itself. And a lot of labor goes into putting that on the very outer margins. I don't think you can ever vanquish. Uh, Jared and I were having this conversation yesterday, Drew. I don't think anybody could ever vanquish your traditions, but you can marginalize it oh, to yeah, the point absolutely. where it's not visible in the public right. space. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The moment they engage, they lose. So instead, it has to be pushed to the very boundaries, and it has to become the realm of the unthinkable. But it's yeah. precisely at this moment that the center starts falling apart, right? That you look around and you realize that this artifice, that these artificial boundaries between um, your tradition and the center, our uh, doxic understanding, our common sense understanding, that's mm. broken down. Common sense has broken down, right? Yeah. And it's precisely in these moments that you can have a, a, a unveiling. You, it's the first time we're able to see within our system with some clarity. And that's mm. ironic. It's only when it's broken do we get right. to see it for what it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw, uh, the, the time magazine article, um, either of you drew or Akram, um, from NT, Wright Recently. Has that no, floated? I saw
2: that it was moving around, but I didn't read it yet.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating. Cause what he, um, what he basically says Akram is Christianity has no ex- explanation for this moment. That's not what Christianity does. Christianity is not an explanation. It's not in the explanation business. Um, what Christianity does is open up a space where there aren't easy answers um, to difficult questions, but there are new ways of actually posing those questions altogether. And the Enlightenment Modernist project that um, equates every question with an answer is part of the thing that Christianity actually creates a new space where the questions are actually considered in new ways, as if Mm -hmm. the things that we're actually facing could be responded to in ways that we've never responded to before, which, which is part of the fascinating thing that um, uh, what a market mentality can't do is give us new options other than Pepsi or Coke and you know, a Ford it. or Holden like the yeah. these. So with that in mind, Akram, I think that's your intro, bro.
2: Yeah, that's the intro. Right. I think
0: that, I think that's our intro to you. And if people want more, um, we, we can leave a, a link.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that we like to do is um, ask our guests to identify a passage that has the potential, a scriptural passage that has the potential to turn the world upside down. Um, So do you have one, Akram, and can you read that for us? I do, I do. Um,
1: uh, And just maybe this can be part of the um, intro. Uh, uh, One of my mentors once said to me, um, uh, good spirituality is that which gives you the strength to sit comfortably with the mystery, mm. right? Uh, that comfort with mystery. Um, yeah. And uh, the 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 passage that I'm fascinated by, uh, and indeed uh, overlaps with my own uh, research in sociology, is the parable of the talents. But really, to be frank with you, it is chapter, chapter 25 of Matthew. Yeah. That whole, hmm. chapter the whole chapter is... Yeah, yeah. That that is yeah. probably my favorite chapter. Um, and I should give some context. Uh, I am not somebody of the tradition, right. but I am in the tradition in the sense that um, I have grown up around a um, a community that practices what I think is the richest form of Christian dialogue. Right, where there's a lot of generosity mm. of spirit. There's a lot. There's that welcoming presence. There is uh, there is healthy intellectual development that nourishes. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, this is part of where it comes from. So, in the, the particular passage, so we've got the paro, uh, parable of the talents.
0: And, uh, and this action that you're about to do, Akram, um, like reading a translation, is very loaded. So, um, let us know which, which translation are you actually going to do.
1: That's exactly right. You're you absolutely right. I've got the authorized King James Bible.
0: Aha! <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this will be fun.
1: Okay. Yes. Authorized keyword there. Um, I know a little bit about the history of this, uh, Bible. So that's why I chose it, um, more for its historical value. Um, uh, in the relationship between the King and his priests, uh, which I find yeah. really, really fascinating in itself. Um, this is towards the end of the story of the parable of the talents. Well, why don't
0: you start at 14 and, and just read us through.
1: Yeah. Uh, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one, he gave five talents to the other two and to the another one, one to every man, according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he had, then he that had received, then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise he that had received two, he also gained uh, other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his lord's money. After a long time the Lord of these servants cometh. And reckoned with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Thou hast delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, well, good. Um, Good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou'st not sow, and gathering where thou had not straw. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest I reap where I sow not, and I gather where I have not Strawed, thou it therefore to have put my money to the exchanges, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. That's the bit. It's twenty-seven that I find really fascinating, right? Mm. Uh, thou asked therefore to have put my money to the exchanges, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take mm. therefore the talent from him. And give it to, had the, uh, to him which had ten talents. That's another passage that I find really fascinating. Mm-hmm. For unto everyone that had shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that had not shall be taken away, even that which he had. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. And this is a bit that I find really, really uh, strong. Uh, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's precisely then at 31 that we move on to the parable of the goats and the sheep right. and the famous line, yeah. what you did to the least of, what you did to the least, you did for me. Right. That, that juxtaposition is also something that... Um, I found very, very striking. And when I thought long and hard about it, this indeed, this indeed shifted my perspective, um, and it did, it did, it did turn my world upside down in the sense that this passage is both a mirror; uh, it's both a window into this text, but it also acts as a mirror back to me,
0: mm. right? Uh, and Akram, and- like in terms of your personal. Context, because I mean, there's so much here and I, mm. I love that you've chosen the King James version because it actually highlights, um, everything about, I, I deliberately pulled a King James, uh, I've got the new King James version, um, with mm. me for the same, um, reason. But before we get into the context of this particular text and mm. things that have been added, your context, I mean, you're a dear friend to me. Um, but can we reveal to our listeners that you talked about, um, uh, being shaped uh, by the tradition, but not part of the tradition. Yes. Um, what tradition shaped you uh, growing up as a child uh, well, initially uh, in Afghanistan uh, and then uh, Pakistan?
1: So um, uh, I was born in Afghanistan, right in the middle of a civil war. So mm. uh, the idea of a world without violence when I came to Australia was something very new to me.
0: Um, and... Remind everybody how old you were when you actually arrived in Australia.
1: Uh, When I I came to Australia when I was about 10 years old. Now, 10 years is still young enough to be able to absorb a culture without an accent, right? Because it's bad enough (laughs) back in those days that I was uh, a brown kid from Afghanistan. It's another thing to be a brown kid from Afghanistan with an accent, right? It's it's (laughs) almost like a double sin. Um, And the the really uh, profound moment in my life was when September 11 happened and I was about what 10, 11. And Mm. I saw my society change. Um, I saw the way people looked at me and I couldn't be angry with them. I couldn't hate them for doing that because I understood what they were feeling, right? Somebody needed to be held to account. And I was the closest thing to those men, right? (laughs) My Brown skin was the, the closest approximation to those men who had done this terrible thing right? Wow. And I kind of understood their anger, right? The, there was no small amount of um, self-hate there because as moral creatures, we absorb the culture that we're in, including the stuff that says to us that we are terrible agents. Um, mm. And so I was, I guess I'm connected to this Afghan heritage, to this Afghan culture, um, to the Islamic tradition that uh, is there. And Growing up with that, that was always part of my life. And when I went to university, I got the opportunity to go to St George's College, and mm. that's not a particularly religious institution by any means. Rather, it was I became very good friends with the pastor there, and yeah. uh, we would have many, many conversations um, about his tradition. And I genuinely wanted to understand how he saw the world, and uh, through him. And, say, and the
0: connection for both of us is that, uh, Drew, he was my school chaplain in high school. So th- oh, this really? is um, now Father Richard Pengelly, um, who was uh, uh, once upon a time an a Olympic um, uh, swimmer, water, um, player, yeah. well, a water polo player mm. and um, a, an incredible athlete and uh, um, then felt a call to uh, the priesthood in the Anglican um, tradition. So he was a formative influence for... Both Akram and I, yeah, mm-hmm. wonderful
2: connections there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely. He's and a lovely, beautiful man. That uh, in some ways, uh, it's one thing for someone to tell you all these wonderful ethical principles and then just do the exact opposite, right? right. Or wear it as a nice frock, and then there's someone who actually practices what they preach, which is what yeah. he did. You know, he, yeah, when he talked about kindness, he had to. He was doing it while preaching it. He couldn't. He yeah. wasn't asking. Anybody to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. So there was that. I
0: I remember very powerfully after Mm. I became a Christian uh Mm. in my first year of high school, um uh Father Pengeli talking about the only Bible many people will read is our own life. Our initial Mm. question which we ask people is when do you first remember encountering the Bible? For you, Mm. was it with Richard?
1: Uh, I would say so in a deep, authentic way, yes. In some ways, uh, it's the first time that I um, met somebody who I felt was living this incredibly ethical life. And I wanted to ask him and understand him, where does this come from, right? Mm. What what animates this? You know, you could be, he has enormous talents, right? And he, he could have just about done anything. Why That's did he right. choose this particular calling? Why, what was it about his ethics that wanted him, that shaped him to become this type of person? And that for me was the um, uh, encounters with the scripture, right? Yeah. Is mm. uh, And I maybe, maybe there's a difference between the academic approach and the practitioner's approach, right? Um, the academic in me wants to collect knowledge, curate knowledge, right? And is addicted to knowledge. But the practitioner, someone like Richard, that knowledge, that scriptural knowledge, is in the relationship itself, right? Yes. If, if it doesn't, if it doesn't give him, um, if it doesn't guide him in the relationship with others, then he doesn't see, you know, the fact that it's a curiosity inside his mind. How good is that for anybody, right? If it's just a beautifully curated mental model, right, that has no application in the world and has no bearing on his relationships. I've seen a lot of expressions of that type of religion where. Uh, either it's a mark of huh. distinction. Look how look at my learning, right? <laughs> look how much I understand about this particular tradition, right? And then the mm. gap between that and what they're actually doing, uh, and how they're treating others. That for me, how he treated other people was yeah. the first time I think I really encountered the scripture, uh, the mm-hmm. living wow. scripture
2: in yeah, the life of a person. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's that's beautiful. So it's it's interesting along those lines. Then we um, are curious, like. I mean, there's no question when we think about um, Christianity on a global level. I mean, there's it's obviously that it's been tied to various forms of oppression and injustice. Mm-hmm. There's ways in which Christianity and the reading of scripture has been used to uphold the status quo in various ways. So I'm curious, as you're encountering the mm-hmm. spirit at this, the scriptures at this moment, um, the living scripture in some sense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it are you, initially as you're encountering it is it something that is turning the world upside down or is it being used to prop the world up as it is like how are you interpreting its relationship to the broader society in these early moments
1: i suppose uh both um and
0: yeah well
2: and
1: what i what i don't want to do is uh um the, the scripture i think can be used um uh, by folks who wear it as a badge of as a badge of public honor as a robe of public piety right mm, as a right. shield to protect themselves right uh, and yep. what comes to mind is particularly american politicians although we have few versions of them in australia who say things like you know i prayed and god told me that job <laughs> or that pay grade that's for you
0: Right. 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 Really I love your American great. accent, Akram. No, thank nice. you. <laughs> We've
1: perfected it in I'm America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only do it when I'm talking about uh, uh, folks who misuse religion, right? And particularly, yeah. you know, I prayed and God said, you should have more power. You know, right, uh, right, right, who, right. who am I to disagree? And, and what I find extraordinary is <laughs> <when> whatever <laughs> whatever my ego wants, that's also what God wants for me, it right? It just happens <laughs> to be the same,
0: right?
1: <laughs> there's no they all converge. Between, <laughs> there's no distance between my ego, right, and what my ego wants and what God wants. That, that, for me, that's a deeply troubling um approach to religion where, to be honest with you, it it becomes nothing more than a discourse in the Foucauldian sense, right? Where Mm. uh, you're using discourse to achieve a particular social end. And to be honest with you, God is just a placeholder. It could be any, it could be recourse to any form of authority that would be available. It's always being it's always going to be misused in this way. And I wish I could say there's a society in which people don't use spirituality to further their own political ends. Right. But I've yet mm-hmm. to meet yet to encounter such a society. Yeah. Even reading about hunter gatherers, right. This, there's, there's still political contestations there. And you know what people use, uh, the supernatural in those ways as well. And the, yeah. uh, the, the only difference between us and maybe the hunter gatherers is that, um, it's the, the relationship side of things right is far more communal. So even with the spiritual stuff, it's a Mm. communal spiritual uh, connection. So the idea is that it's only by being in a particular type of relationship with these supernatural entities that I can um, achieve some social end. Whereas for us, it's more individuated to be honest. That's the only difference I've seen between the fundamentally uh, using the supernatural in the political ends that we have. The, the other side of it, how it um, questions and how it turns the world upside down is by constantly nipping, and constantly stinging uh, dreams of empire, constantly mm-hmm. corroding at the edges of dreams of empire. The idea yeah. that if I have enough power, if I have martial enough control over a particular population, I'll be able to achieve something extraordinary, right, through my will right? That idea that just with enough power, right? From Constantine onwards, right? Just give me just a little bit more power. And I promise you, me through my efforts, I'd be able to create a heaven for you on this earth, but you have to submit to me and I'll, uh, I'll give all that to you. And what it does is it says, uh, it critiques that and says, you know what? Your ego is never going to be enough. You're never going to be, uh, with enough power, right? With enough power, uh, all that will happen is you, the, the risk of misusing that just increases. You can't trust yourself with power, right? And for me, religion at its best is not, um, it's not a handmaiden to power, but rather it's, it's critique. It is constantly looking at power with suspicion. Right. right, all forms right. of power with suspicion, including power in its own sense, and I don't mean power to do things. I mean power over other people.
0: Over right. other people, right? right. Absolutely. Right.
1: I want to make right. that distinction because uh, it can be very spiritually empowering to do certain things in the world, but the power over other people—that is something really—that's something I'm really, really skeptical about. Um, yeah. uh, and and also the idea that if uh, if we can internally regulate people's inner worlds enough will be able to achieve some sort of nirvana on Earth. the idea that with enough and of course when i mean by power ultimately it's backed up by violence that's right. what we, we call it structural violence but really if you think about it you keep pushing those structures enough and eventually there'll be a man with a big stick right, right. and he will <laughs> uh, he won't tell you what's right or wrong he'll just tell you who has the final say on this matter
0: right Akram, I'm, uh, I'm aware yes, that Um, so much of your own personal experience, um, uh, like you're an academic and you're, you're Mm. so eloquent. And yet I'm, I'm thinking about this 10 year old refugee child arriving in Australia and, um, how much of, um, you know, weaponized religion isn't an abstract for you read in an academic book. It's how your family ended up on the opposite side of the world. I, I wonder, um, well, two things I, I want to ask. One is um, comedian Alice Fraser was on the podcast and she said, uh, she was talking about when Christianity goes toxic and she says, Christianity only makes sense when it's out of coercive power. Yes. But she also provocatively said um, Islam only makes sense when it is in power. I was wondering what oh, you that's thought. Really um, that's Yeah. Growing up um, in, in, um, as a Muslim, and yet being conversant with Christianity with yes. such an interest in uh, politics and religion. Um, how, how do you react to that before I ask my next question?
1: Yeah, that's actually a, a fascinating quote. And it really makes me think uh, one of the key differences between Afghanistan and here was that here in Australia, we live in a secular disenchanted world right? The idea of the supernatural not being part of the world is very natural here. We, we have a very mechanical understanding of how the world works. In Afghanistan, the supernatural is woven into the everyday, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there is no such thing as denying God because God is all around. God is, you know, uh, what animates everything. Mm-hmm. There is no possibility of denial because uh, there isn't a mechanical ex- uh, explanation of the world. God is part of the explanation of the world. Right, and we take this disenchantment that's only happened for the last 200 years, if that there, God is presupposed into everything. Whereas here, we have a mechanical explanation of most phenomena. Right, there is no room for God in our secular materialistic world. Right, and if you try to bring God into the picture, um, he seems out of place in this particular mental model right? I'm not saying he's out of place in the world. I'm saying out of place in this particular mental model.
2: Right.
1: Um, he is not part of the uh, etiology of the world, nor the teleology right. of the world, right? right. Mm. Neither part of the causation, nor the purpose of the world. Right. Whereas mm. those two things are presupposed, it's baked into, right, the very forces of nature in a place like that. And until very recently, that was also the case um, in most Western countries. So that. It, that explains part of the difference there, right? But the other part of it is, um, ever since the sack of uh, Baghdad, right, and the burning of the library, there's always been a. a you almost get the sense that in the Islamic tradition, there hasn't that self confidence, right? Yeah, hasn't been there uh, because that intellectual oh, tradition. Uh, sorry, possum is just barking nonstop. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <just> sorry <laughs> That's
0: fine. We'll come back to the burning of Baghdad.
1: what is it isn't into his eyes right i can it's there's something really scary about it and that is he loves me so much so unconditionally that i could do any manner of hurt to him and he would not stop loving me
2: yeah yeah that's so
1: that's that's very (laughs) there's something very terrifying to be confronted with truly unconditional love right yeah Yeah. yeah yeah, it's it. And um, uh, again, Richard Pengelly um, said, when you know, you look into a dog's eyes, there's something very Christ-like in that. In that, there is firstly no malice, but secondly, there is an infinite pool of love. And there's nothing I can do to make him stop loving me, hmm. right? And that, to my <laughs> uh, to my very conditional understanding of love, right, is it's really confronting.
0: Uh, it's actually quite threatening, isn't it? Like it when is, so much of is. Um, like in terms of your study of anthropology, with with mm-hmm. so much of societies actually being based around control, to truly mm-hmm. encounter someone on whom um your responses can't alter their affection. Yes. That, that's to step into the place of real prayer. That that's actually to encounter something that um uh will transform you.
1: Yeah. And this tells you something very interesting about the nature of human beings, right? We would we would prefer more control yes. uh, than unconditional love.
2: <laughs> See, Akron, if you kill. had
0: not rescued your dog and, and let your dog go do number twos, we, yeah. we wouldn't have got this on the podcast. This is fantastic. I know, right. I know. That's, There's that's something...
1: It, it, uh, again there is something uh, in his gaze right the way and a gaze is a very fascinating thing because it's both a window into that person right or that entity and also a mirror back to you right yeah, and right. what he sees right is something so different to how i see myself he mm. sees me right as the source of love right and he's there's nothing that i could do to him to make me uh, to make him stop loving me And that for me is terrifying because that gives me no control over that process, right? Mm. I want to control the fact that he can love me or not love me. Mm. That Mm. that human instinct for control is there, even that we would prioritize it, right? Or rather we find more comfort in having control over making something stop loving us than having no control and having an entity that absolutely loves us. And this is why the scriptures or any uh, which religious tradition is really confronting because it tells us we don't have control, right? Hmm. There's an entity that loves you and you don't have control over that. For a lot of us, that is deeply confronting at some existential level because it means there is something so much more greater than us. And, and, and for people at the bottom of society, that actually is a lot easier to understand than it is people on top. I had Hmm. a really interesting encounter with some of the university higher ups and they found this, um, the the coronavirus uh, upheaval, profoundly confronting in a way that I didn't. I'm used to being at the very bottom of the pile, right? I'm used to having very little control over my life and having these people essentially be masters of my universe. And for a brief moment in time, these people can't control thousands of other people. And I'm, I'm saying this is not a bad thing. This is, you know, it's part of their job as the directors of this massive corporation. They're their commands shape the lives of thousands of people. Their word makes careers and breaks careers, right? Mm. And to have that kind of power always at your disposal, right? Even if a small amount of it is taken away, you can see how distraught they are. And then to tell this entity that you can't control another entity who's so much greater than you loving you, I don't think they could accept that. I don't think this particular person that I was talking to, right, could accept that there is something that loves them and this person has no control to make that entity stop loving them. Yeah. Right. They will find it. Yes. Sorry, God.
0: Um, you you just express such a profound. I mean, this is the centre of Christian theology. Um, mm. to use your language, um, that the <laughs> your your dog, whom uh, which has unconditional love for you, yes. uh, you express it in terms of uh, this is how Christ um sees yeah. us and, and relates to us like your, your handle on Christianity and the, the center of Christianity is so profound. Um, what, and this is too personal, a a question Mm -hmm. you you tell me to get stuff, but, Mm -hmm. um, you talked about, um, being, uh, of another tradition yet in the tradition. Yes. Yes. What has, I don't know if kept you or, um, uh with such a profound articulation of a God who is sovereign yet is not in control. Um mm. I, I love how you refer to the Jesus of the New Testament as that man on the donkey. Yes, and, yes, you know, uh, As this time of year, Holy Week and all the rest. What it is for um the unspeakable, um, uh, the mystery that's beyond our uttering to, to be revealed in <laughs> a man on a donkey. Yes. Or yes. even more confrontingly, a man on a cross that reveals a unconditional love that we can't control.
1: Yeah. What I, is I, it? We can't control. We you? can't make him stop loving us. If you, and, yeah. and again, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I should preface by saying this, I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone in your tradition, right? I, right, I know right. what those sandals, I know right, those sandals so. feel like, right? Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, I know the feel of them on my foot, and I'm imagining it from your perspective. Part of, I suppose part of this is my sociological training, right? Is to understand someone from the outside in, right? Yeah. And slowly right. move your way and work yourself gently into their tradition and try to understand and genuinely try to understand, not for... Yes not for the sake of some end goal, but as an end in itself, right? That's the really important bit about sociology that we miss. Yes, we get to write ethnographies about people, right? But the ethnography is the byproduct. It shouldn't be the main goal of that interaction, right? Because Mm. the the idea that as I get to know you and become deeper and mesh in your tradition, I learn important insights about myself. And the whole point of life is to understand one another in like this. Most of hunter-gatherers, right, a lot of their labor is nothing more than interacting with others and shaping others to be the sort of people they would like to hang out with. Most Mm -hmm. of the labor in a hunter-gatherer society, particularly (laughs) in a rich area, is just to hang out with others, right? Because the whole point of life is to interact with others in such a way so as to connect with them and make them the type of people, fashion them the type of people we'd like to hang out with. I almost feel like we are lumps of clay, right, that meet one another and we get to mold each other. Hmm. right and we're constantly molding each other and uh, the sociological perspective that i come from says really that's the whole point of all uh, social life uh, for us human beings is to mold one another into the type of ethical entities we would like to encounter right and just mm-hmm. be with so if, if that's the ultimate purpose of life and notice that is a very secular understanding of purpose that's a very secular understanding of purpose and it's one that stops at death uh hmm. There's the supernatural, right? So the supernatural for me um, is precisely when we move beyond death because we we have to go into the realm of fate now. We have to go into the realm um, of beyond the social sciences. My social sciences tell me nothing more beyond that point. And Mm -hmm. to get back to um, your original question, it's what this rich tradition has given me a vocabulary to understand Not only this world, but the possibility of a different world to the one that we're living in right now. I think it's the only tradition that's given me a rich vocabulary to understand a possibility outside of capitalism and a possibility that gentles the savage nature of capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I say capitalism, I mean I don't mean the market because I think we right. can conflate the two things. Exchange right. and market processes have always been around. Right. right. That's, yes, that's, right. that's that's really right nothing right. new. The, the capitalism is one extreme variation of the exchange, and it's almost as if every society has a ratio of um, uh, what I call that you, you help each other out based on need. You have uh, exchange and you have gift economy and you have hierarchy economies, right? So it's usually a combination of these four variables that any one society is constructed out of. This is how they socially, politically coordinate themselves. And in our society, the exchange, the, the one, mod, uh, one out of four modalities becomes the modality through which you do all of your interactions through. That balance is probably a bit off. And this, <laughs> that, that critique, to put it in an understated manner, to put, it, to, uh, uh, to put the critique, um, it, it's, it's a kingdom of means.
2: Yeah, Our yeah. economy
1: is a kingdom of means and there is no end to that constraints that understands it. And it's really, really dangerous when all you have is a kingdom of means. If you think about uh, the uh, one, one, one particular context I'm quite familiar with is the asbestos cases, right? So these companies, they made asbestos products knowing that in 20, 30 years, all these people are going to be very, very sick, but they oh. also knew they're going to make so much money till then, right? From a right. pure economic perspective, from a means end perspective, right? Mm. It's, it makes sense. And you know what? You could even build in compensation, right? Into your profits. So yes. you do it knowing you're going to make so much profit that you could pay out people and still be super duper profitable. Now, mm. just because something is profitable doesn't mean it is good. And here we have a, and really this gets back to the original question you asked me, which is when does spirituality when, when does when do the scriptures turn the world upside down and when is it a prop uh, when it's used as a justification for what is good for me it is used as a prop when mm. it's used as a source of understanding what is good right mm. then I think it has the capacity to flip the world upside down because if if the dominant modality in our society is what is good is what is good for me. Then we've lost something really, really important. Yeah. Mm. Right. It, it's it's yeah. that's the kind of society in which you make asbestos products, knowing right that a chunk of those profits will be given to people who will die of asbestos melanoma in twenty to thirty years. Yeah. Right. That that kind of reasoning, that logical reasoning, needs an ethical, um, a robust ethical critique, and unfortunately there is there's no game. There's no game uh, uh, at the moment, right, that does that. The only game that I see uh, in our public discourse um, is really spirituality, uh, religion. Mm-hmm. It's the only critique that... It's the only le- it's the only area that has sufficient public resources in terms of symbolic resources for us to be able to draw from and critique these practices, right? Mm-hmm. Because what it does is it, it fundamentally rejects the underlying premise. The underlying premise is that if a person... So basically... Uh, the in all these models economic models of uh, what we now call neoliberal models in all of them, there is a human being with a hole in their heart right and that and the system says <laughs> that hole is an endless pit of wants and needs isn't this amazing we can make we can now create supply, and this supply will fit into this pool of infinite demand. This is the engine around which we make a whole um, a whole economy and originally adam smith 's version of this particular engine was exchange our modern understanding of it is competition that we will compete with one another to fill this hole in our heart with all these material things and the beauty of it is yeah. it's a bottomless pit we will never right. have enough things right? right that's why the economy can endlessly grow and what this religious and spiritual tradition says is uh wait, 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 wait. back off back off yeah Yell- i see the whole too, but i don't think you're meant to put things there <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
0: played it yeah,
2: reminds me of augustine right the that's exactly ordered, right that's right and so i i always love his um analogy of when he was um young and talking about stealing peers why did he steal yeah. these peers right and yes yeah ultimately um because he was looking for companionship but he was doing all these destructive things and seeking after these peers uh, when ultimately for him obviously he he needed to be seeking after god and god was seeking after him right um uh, but certainly uh, the things that we try to fill this hole with right um, that capitalism suggests that we ought to fill the hole with and works pretty hard right at um, making that seem self-evident that uh, that is what fills the hole uh, can just lead us on a hamster. And there, there's, a, there's
1: another layer that I think is really genius. There's a new layer of sophistication now. Um, and this has come through in my research. And that is, yeah. uh, it goes to you, okay, it's really selfish to want these things for yourself. But you know what? Those around you, those you love, by accumulating things, you can do good for them. That mm, That is yeah. how it really embeds itself. That is yeah. how, you know, uh, we have the simple mental model. That yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. But it really finds life, right, when it embeds itself in a place of love. So suddenly yeah. you accumulate out of
2: love. Yeah. That Which is...
1: We're hearing that right
2: now. I mean, at least certainly in the U S they're saying uh, these checks are coming and, you know, spend the money to, you know, boost the economy. You know, this is the right thing to do for your neighbors. Right. That's, that's the logic's going on right now.
0: This is for me, one of the fascinating things about the pandemic is that, um, to take it back to Akram's analogy of asbestos, um, Mm. you can't actually build in compensation Um, for our ecological crisis. And as George W. Bush told everybody to go and take holidays in Florida after this event which caused people in Perth, Australia, to look at a 10-year-old refugee child in ways that, um, as if life wasn't hard enough already, that the Mm. response to the tragedy, and this is N.T. Wright's point, uh, that Christianity doesn't provide um, explanations. Uh, It actually invites us into lament. Um, mm-hmm. but because there, there aren't yet answers um, to what we haven't yet processed. Um,
2: that's mm-hmm. a, that's
0: a different space. That's beyond the, um, our ecological crisis says there is no compensation for destroying home. Like yes. uh, it's, yes. this is it. Um, th- this is the it end is. game. And so this economy, which is. ironically is destroying the, the, um, eco and the oikos, uh, like mm. the household, um, w- we are committing um, a, a form of, it's not merely ecocide side. Um, mm. This is um, a domestic side. Uh, we, we are destroying yes. Yes. our home.
2: Our home. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's
1: not in our imagination at the moment. In our imagination, what I'm showing and through my research. Well, again, this is before the coronavirus, right? Is the way the system ultimately works is not because people are monsters. It actually, it, 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 it's really fascinating. It knows that there is a profound capacity for love, right? And it hijacks that. And it says, how much do you really love your kids? Have you bought shares for them? Have you, have you made a trust structure for them? Have you, have you put into place mechanisms that will ensure their financial security? And the only way you can do that is to buy more capital assets, Right. right, And so right. suddenly but, what happens is accumulating capital assets becomes within the family an expression of love, love. even yeah. though the external consequences of it is this terrible calamity that we see around us. Um, mm. I think you can do the profoundest harm uh, to one the place of love. To give you an example, back... Uh, S- say back that again, Akron. Some of the most profound damage you can do to one another. Oh, uh, Drew has dropped out. I'm here. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. um, uh, some of the most profound damage that you can do to other human beings is out of a place of love. What I mean by that is yeah. the hate that comes out of love, or not even hate, but the damage you can do out of love is profound because when I was in Afghanistan, uh, people who had lost loved ones, right, would do violence out of grief right, as a way of almost honoring the lost, the person that they loved. Right. The violence onto someone else became a way of honoring the love that they had for that person. They would do violence, not because they hated that person, uh, but rather because of the love that they felt for that person. And too much empathy with one group, right, too much empathy with one group means you hyper- realize one and you make another into non-human entities that need this violence on them right in order to ju- to do right by, by the scales of
0: justice which empathy is the very dynamics of nationalism
1: totally totally empathy here is not an ethical framework it's only a framework for proximity right? Empathy is only about proximity, it is not about ethics. So this has been another critique that I've come through in the social sciences. Yes, being able to empathize with others is really, really important, but that in itself is not sufficient for ethically acting uh, outside of those empathic bonds because you can only empathize with so few people, right? That's the problem with our empathy centers. You can't, um, the personal is not enough, for deep ethical reasoning, you do need a wider tradition to draw from in order to generate ethical principles to think. with. Yeah. Right? Mm. Because yeah. one of the ways we've traditionally done ethics is we've not so much got rid of the distinction between what is good and what is good for me. We've just expanded the notion of me. Right. So what we've done is we've gone, mm-hmm. oh, I'll now empathize not just with my immediate family, but with my extended family. That's my circle of moral regard. Right, Only people right, in that right. particular circle get to have the full benefit of my ethical reasoning. If we fall outside of that, well, uh, I can do just, just about whatever I want to. And I suspect this goes back um, to our um, evolutionary history in which our species developed the capacity for hyper-empathy within the group and hypo-empathy outside right. of the group. That's right. why we could do that terrible violence. That's why um, it is so easy to turn off empathy at the large cultural level towards other groups, right? right? And what you do is you create a narrative in which they're less human and they're not worthy of your empathy. They're not mm. worthy and deserving of your fellow feeling. And it's, it's precisely at that point that you can start to do evil to them. And if religion becomes uh, embroiled in that process, then that something's gone terribly wrong. Right. Yeah. I almost feel like religion should be a corrective on that process. It asks you, who do you identify with? Or to put it in the Christian language, who's really your neighbor? Yeah. yeah, right. That's what that so, question uh, critiques. Yeah. Who's so, really your neighbor?
2: That's good. That's good. So on that particular note, then, help us um, as we do some scriptural and ethical reasoning around um, this Matthew text and the parable yes. of the talents. Um, yes. Help us uh, – Uh, open up our ethical reasoning in that way.
0: Yeah, Akram, because doesn't the Bible say that um, the kingdom of heaven is like capitalism? I'm sure that's what it (laughs) said in verse 14. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, uh, there's many ways of reading this particular parable and I have seen it being um, expressed as basically what I call an investor theory of value. The idea being that value (laughs) is generated when somebody invests Right, Uh, and how and the labor of all the people who create that particular good or product doesn't really matter. The only thing that creates value is the investor and their initial startup capital, right? That and and to them, and only them, does the fruits of that particular labor uh, belong to. I almost think of it as almost a gardening analogy, right? The gardener is the person with the seed, they put it in, and through natural processes, the fruit this particular plant bears some fruit, they pluck the fruit, voila. But of course, uh, between investment and profit is a labor of a whole bunch of other people. So that mm. there's one layer in which you can read this story as basically endorsing an investor theory of value, saying, hey, the person that invests the money, the capital, they're the owners of everything. And, and if you don't invest, right, and if you, don't, if you don't labor well with their investment, then get the hell out, go into the darkness, and gnash your teeth, right? Whale and gnash your teeth. That's one or, or even thing.
0: more so um, God will um, the, the most high will send you into hell yeah. basically right like yeah, so I
1: find that really fascinating that uh, and he's talking about the fact that well if you didn't t- uh, if you weren't gonna labor in the investment I gave you you should have put it in the bank account so it would accrue interest now
0: <laughs> my understanding
1: right, of right. it is even at that time oh uh, sorry, I have to go and take puppy.
0: There, there is a teaching moment of unconditional love asking for your attention in the background, Akra.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the first layer of reading it is, hey, um, basically investor the theory of value. Isn't this fantastic? And to be honest with you, at a literal level, yeah, it reads that way. If the master is God and Master has given you money, um, Essentially, God is a capitalist, right? Right. He's giving you capital.
0: (laughs) Uh, Particularly as you read it from the King James as well. Um, So if you were reading from uh, any other translation uh, or in your King James, you might have like a little footnote. The the point being that um, in the Greek, there's no Mm -hmm. the kingdom of heaven is like.
2: Yeah, not for that passage. Right?
0: Not for this passage at all. Other passages um, uh, in Matthew 25, Uh, like the parable um, of uh, the virgins, uh, the 10 virgins, um, it it features, but it doesn't feature here. Uh, The other thing that you read in uh, your version is um, Mm. Lord. Um, His Mm. Lord, sometimes um, master, while... If you're reading from the NIV or the NRSV um, or David Bentley Hart's translation or N.T. Wright's translation, uh, the the word there in Greek is simply man. Ah, So even to use the term Lord lends itself to a certain interpretation.
1: It does. It does. Particularly around the time that that was written in England, you had a system in which every village was ruled by a Lord.
0: Exactly.
1: Under the what was known as the man- manorial system, um, exactly, you have the manor house. Yep, where uh, the, essentially that local lord was had jurisdiction over pretty much all matters over that village. Right. They were judge, jury, and executioner if needed. Be right. So the idea of the language of the lord in that particular context in England uh, identified itself squarely with power over others. In fact, all power over others. Uh, so much so that if you were in an English village around this time, you couldn't leave without your Lord's permission. You were pretty much in everything but name a slave. Yeah. Is that interesting? Well,
0: Drew was just saying, just um, saying uh, before, Drew, do you want to open up that about slave?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's just interesting also that the King James uses servants, right. Instead of slave. Um, and, and what the implications for Christian readers it can throw us off because if we hear servant, most of the gospels praise, you know, servants as a good thing, right? And so so when he says good and faithful servant versus good and faithful slave, we hear that and we think, oh, that's a good thing. When in fact, you know, um, that's not in this particular text, you know, it's actually a troubling characteristic that they're going along with and being exploited by, you know, this man. This. So oh, actually, he yeah. takes all the money, doesn't he? The the Lord takes all the money, right? That, that's
0: is... right. So, Akram, with your yeah. initial like paradigm that you've set up for us, mm-hmm. this isn't merely a text um, for some, uh, you know, s- silly, superstitious, prosperity gospel um, that mm-hmm. provides Bible verses for neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is actually a picture of um, God as uh, a slaveholder, yes. um, who is punitive, punishing. Uh, yes. Not to be trusted, and uh, unquestionably is yes. unlike Jesus. Um, uh, in in punishing those who have little and giving to those who have <laughs> have the most. Like <laughs> isn't this that is a fascinating. This the first, <laughs> that will be yeah. last, and the last will be first. This is the first will be given a position above first, and the last yeah. will be put below last.
1: Yes, in fact, it will put to the darkness where they'll dash. They'll gnash their teeth and wail, right? Right. The kind of suffering that uh, human beings really identify with because um, in our brains, right, in our uh, hunter gatherer, in our um, primate brains, one of the scariest things for us human beings is isolation. Being isolated from the tribe, from the group, is we have a profound fear of that, right? And that's why social rejection, there's a part of our brain that processes social rejection, and then that's also the part of the brain that processes physical pain right? So wow. the, the pain of being excluded, right? Your body really doesn't know the difference between a physical trauma and the social trauma of exclusion. So this, this story, right? Is speaking to something really deep being out, thrown out into the darkness, right? Where you're gnashing your teeth and you're wailing something. That, this is a calamity for that servant, right? This hmm. is a profound calamity for that servant. This isn't just the fact that they've lost their job, right? No, no, they've lost everything.
2: everything. They've
1: lost their identity. They've, they've, their whole world. They've lost it all. And we just move on. Right. And that's what the story is so powerful is that it just cuts, it fades to black and you go, uh, <laughs> what did I just, what did I just hear? Right. right. If, if, it's, it's a really shocking story. And I think it's meant to, it's designed that way, obviously, right. That it's meant to shock something in you. It's, it's trying to pull some moral intuition out of you because it's going, everything makes sense. Logically in the story, everything makes sense. And, and indeed, uh, in Jesus' world and in ours today, uh, that story makes perfect logical cultural sense, and yet yeah. there was something really wrong there. Right? Yeah. and at one layer we've got that investment theory of value that we're really struggling with. At another layer, another layer of reading for me is, uh, wait a second, the master gets to keep everything, and the fact that these people are laboring right for this other guy, wait, and, and we're told he's a harsh man, and he's right. uh, he's quite demanding, and okay. This, there's something else going on there as well. There's another layer of reading it at the level of exploitation. And then right. there is a third layer, and I think we spoke about this, Jared, you and I, that what if this is a critique of this system, not an endorsement of it, right? right? What if the master is not God at all, right? But the master is actually us and the way we practice the world. And I've had this theory for a little while that um, religion holds up the world when we worship the God the way we would like to be worshipped had we been God. right? <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, I've seen that a lot, right? Uh, I see people praising God in the way that they would like to be praised, right? Oh, God, your arms are so strong. Oh, God, your intellect is amazing, right? And yeah, I, it's like that Monty <laughs>
0: Python scene in um, uh, The Meaning of Life. Oh, Lord, yes. you are so huge, so very, very big. My, we're all really <laughs> impressed down here, I can tell you. <laughs> As if the infinite right, requires my validation.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, the, the, there's something really strange about that. And I've always thought that uh, taking the Lord's name in vain wasn't about swearing with God. I always thought that that particular uh, part meant you don't bring God into your vainal projects. Right, it's, you don't make him a puppet in your vanity show. Right? Projections, right? That's yeah. that's exactly right. You know, I was sleeping the other night, and God came into my dreams, and He said, Akram, I want you to have that promotion." So I said to my boss, "You know, God said it, right?" And it surely wasn't me in my own dreams picturing what God would say to me, uh, <laughs> pretending it was God. So we have this. We so we have this critique here that uh, the person that you think is God may not be God at all. You're projecting right. mm-hmm. something into this figure, right? And is this really your projection here? And if so, what does that say about you? That's why I think this particular passage is not just a window into the text. It's really a mirror back to the person, right? Yeah. If Which you I want to pause this- there
0: just a second, Akram, yeah. because uh, the importance of what you've just said is that this text is confront- confronting, mm. not because our world is completely different, mm. but because it's exactly the same. Absolutely. Right. We could be talking about um, the dynamics of the Walmart corporation. Um, We could be talking about Boeing. We could be talking about general electric. Um, We could be talking about Amazon. Uh, We could be talking about these realities that all of us participate in, regardless of whether we like it or not, because they're unavoidable. And this this isn't a story about the kingdom of heaven is like Mm -hmm. um, or God's Mm -hmm. future is like, but Mm -hmm. the empires as they are, yes. Are like,
1: yes. Right. Yes. And
0: this, and that's, this this
1: is a story of what is not what ought to be. Right. Right. Uh, Right. And and, and almost the rest of the story in this particular uh, (laughs) chapter is furnishing you with the moral resources, right. To be able to see the problems within this story. Yeah. Right. It's It's giving you the resources to be able to turn around and go, wait a second. There's something really not right here. Um,
2: uh, sorry, I cut you off, Drew. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that's really helpful. And I do think, I mean, just for maybe I imagine for many listeners, this may be the very first time that they've encountered hearing it explained in this way. And I was saying to Jared, uh, before that, um, you know, I've heard this passage unpacked in three different ways, right? Three mm, different mm. kind of approaches to reading it. Mm. One would be, <coughs> and you called it the investor theory, right? I think is what you yeah. said, Akram. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've often called it, you know the stewardship model but the same yes. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a affirmation of capitalist practices of an yeah. investing, and stewardship is used in a particular way, which is not about. Yes. Seeking what God wants with our resources, it's that we yes. can do whatever we want with it, right? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, to increase, you know. it. and so so long as we are effectively increasing our wealth, then we're being good stewards. Um, so that's mm. one model. Uh, I've seen, I have heard another approach, which sees that as a problem, is trying to combat it, but mm. I think still assumes nonetheless that this is a kingdom parable and so the Mm. other way that i've heard this approach and i know like even who i appreciates um um, donald crable and others like that who've they've made the argument that the talents to read this as an analogy and that the talents then represent the hebrew tradition and that you need to Mm -hmm. invest Mm -hmm. and make and use it, and don't throw it to waste. And if you use it, that it will—the kingdom will multiply, right? And so they're trying yeah. to subvert it, um, yes. but they're locked into assuming that this is a kingdom parable rather than a critique yes. and unveiling of the world as it is. And so I think, um, and, and there's it,
0: some very sophisticated versions of that as well. I mean, N.T. Wright would um, uh, take a similar
2: uh, right. Yeah, he does as, as well. As that. Yep, that's and,
0: right. Uh, um, probably
1: the most. Uh, oh, sorry, you go, John.
0: Oh, I was just going to say some uh, commentaries draw out that the whole thing about talent, and Mm. really we're talking about like bullion, we're we're talking about like um, uh, something that is really heavy, like it's kilos and kilos. um, Mm. And uh, that the whole thing about talent, unfortunately, our English word being talents that immediately yeah. preachers jump into what are your talents and how are you yeah. using them? Right. Right. Or, right. 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 Um, in, instead that, uh, I've heard a preach that, uh, even the, the weight of it would bring to mind a sense of the Kabod in Hebrew, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. uh, which is connected in um, Greek to, um, uh, doxa or, or, uh, Gloria in, in Latin or glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, there's a sense of a weightiness and um, how the, the weightiness and the place for the weightiness of God's glory was the temple and um, where in the temple was it found? It was actually over the mercy seat. And so really this is about the weightiness of God's forgiveness and that God's forgiveness um, uh, is, you know, to take it back to Akram talking about uh, the, the dog's unconditional love, that um, some of the conditions of unconditionalness is that to get in on it, um, you can't leave people out of it, and so there, yes. there are ways that I've heard that preached in ways that are, are quite. Um, but you know, Chad Myers and um, you were quoting Hendricks earlier. Yeah,
2: Aubrey th- well, Hendricks, a black scholar who wrote um, "The Politics of Jesus." I believe in his yeah. he takes he um, unpacks it in a similar way that Akram is as well. Yeah,
0: and basically says. Nah, like the importance of verse 14 and it not being a kingdom parable, but it actually mm-hmm. being a parable of the world reverses all of that. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So right.
0: while, and I mean, this is the nature of the scriptures, um, that the, the word of God and the living word in terms of the, the interpretive, um, uh, where do we see Jesus walking around in, in these texts and the multiple ways in which interpretation opens up that there isn't uh, one reading. There are many readings, um, Part of that is, um, actually, you don't have to do the acrobatics. Um, know the yeah, Hebrew yeah, or the Greek yes. or the Latin. Actually, there's just a very clean uh, way to go. God is nothing like this. And maybe Jesus isn't saying. And I- I'm struck even by, you know, in Matthew's gospel, uh, we get a couple of chapters over, literally two chapters over. Mm. And it is, it is Jesus who is, you know, in the afternoon darkness, has come, The darkness has come over the land and he's crying out, uh, undergoing what feels like forsakenness. And suddenly mm. we see mm. that Jesus is the one who's cast out into utter darkness yes. because he's not participating yes. in this yeah. way
2: yeah. Of, yeah. of the market. That's yes. right. That's good. I mean, that isn't is that the...
0: what Holy Monday is about? Jesus um, turning over the tables in the temple It right. is That's actually right. going and there's a reference to usury here, and I think what the
1: the uh, my, uh, sorry Matthew is doing is actually linking it back to an Aristotelian tradition, right? Because clearly Aristotle would have been read by some of these folks, right? Sure. And David Bentley uh, Hart, I totally agree. Uh, Aristotle had because you can see there's very sophisticated philosophical language here, right? And the um, one of my understandings of Aristotle is he had a deep suspicion of interest because for him, it was a conceptual, just not an ethical, but a conceptual one whereby he thought something coming out of a dead thing was very wrong. He thought there was something very wrong about making money from money because money is a dead thing. Right? Yeah. And it giving rise to something else, right? It can't do it, but he thought it was a, um, it was almost like a, uh, trying to animate the dead. You're doing something really unnatural by relying on, usury because the interest the money that came from the money if dead things can't give rise to more to living things and we would say of course that's a labor of somebody else that's giving rise to that extra money not the money itself but for him uh there's this idea that there is something profoundly unnatural in a dead thing giving rise to another dead thing right there's okay. something almost he, he wouldn't use this word, but i would use it he would see that it's spooky and evil right mm. uh, because this does not adhere to the laws of physics or to the laws of biology, but only to the laws of mathematics, right? right? Interest is a, is a creature of mathematics and it can do, it can survive. The, The thing about it is right. It will never die. Interest will never die. In a way that, for example, you know, you give somebody a barn and you say, work on this barn. Eventually, that barn will break down. You give them a herd of cows. Eventually, they will die. Even slaves, eventually, all of them will die, right? There's a natural process to it. But uh, interest, it lies outside the laws of physics and biology because its true master is mathematics, right? And so the idea that this dead thing can live on long after the living that gave rise to it have gone and died, that there was something he really struggled to find a legitimate place for this type of practice in his moral universe. Right. His idea was if you want to make money, go and labor, go and do some hard work. Right. And then the fruits of your labor, wonderful, good thing. But that fruits of those labor, that came from a living thing. A tree is a living thing that gives rise to fruit money, gold, right. Or silver will never give rise to more gold or silver. And when we think that it does, there's something that's gone really long.
0: And, and yet Akram, that's, that's 98% of all trades that will happen tomorrow on the stock exchange. That's right. That's is exactly right. what you've just described. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about, um, uh, you, you know, honest labor where somebody produces something and yes. sells it for a fair price yes. uh, in, in exchange for. What we're talking mm-hmm. about is this um, uh, bloated gambling where people yep. make money off speculations. Um, yes. Uh, that and and whether in terms of second temple Judaism and the debates between David Bentley Hart and N. T. Wright and how much you know those questions of was Aristotle read or not, clearly yep. this is a Jewish audience, these are Jewish yeah. texts, and there's no question that Moses was read. Right. Like,
2: mm. <laughs> right. That's what and I it, was thinking like all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, it's pretty clear around usury and these kind of practices. It's sin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how this, this is <laughs> yeah.
0: This is Leviticus um, 25, and I'm going to start <laughs> at verse 35. Yeah. And it says, yeah. if, if one of your uh, country people um, becomes poor, so this again is your circles of empathy that you're talking about, mm. becomes poor and unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a refugee or a temporary mm. resident so that they can continue to live amongst you. Do not take interest, that is usury, of any kind from them but fear your God that your countrymen or country people may continue to live among you. You must not lend him or or her money in the interest of selling him or her food at a profit. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the good land of Canaan and to be your God. This is the heart of what it Mm -hmm. is to be called by God. Mm -hmm. That election is about a vocation and this vocation this calling has no room for usury, no room for actually exploiting right, another right, in their right. poverty. Isn't that
1: interesting? And in the story, in the parable, notice there's two—the absence of two things. There's an absence of labor, right? And there's an absence of exchange, right? So See, we're not that's saying fascinating. that's fascinating. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no yeah. market, right? There's no market in which an exchange, legitimate exchange, takes place, and there's no labor in which something's done, right, to generate that extra money. The, the money is seen to come from the money itself, right? Yeah. So the five goes five talents becomes 10 talents.
0: And, so it, and in terms of the ta- talent, talents, Akram, it's worth naming that one talent was thought to be 15 years wages. So wow. in equivalent Australian right. currency, we're looking at about $2.5 right. $2. million. That's right. the right. amount right. that's for one talent. And right. you know, right. Right. one gets five, right? right? Another gets two. One, like th- this is serious coin we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And we have no idea
1: the rationale of the master and giving this person five, this person two, right? Uh, And and nobody even asks, why does the master get to have these five, talents uh, to begin with right there's no rationale we are just dropped in the middle of the story right and mm. obviously we're in a feudal system of some description right again we, we don't question why the lord gets to have all this and these people are the servants it, 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 it was david Graeber, a phenomenal anthropologist. yes dead. if you're able to tell a story right uh, he, and i think he used his, his one of his idea uh, explanations of ideology was that imagine if i uh, talked about a particular penguin who's a lawyer who goes to court and does blah, 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 right? We go halfway through the story, and you forget that it's a penguin being a lawyer because you've already bought into the story. At some point, you stop questioning, wait a second, penguins can't speak? Penguins can't be lawyers, right? (laughs) right, What the hell is a penguin doing here? the, (laughs) The nature of the narrative pulls you in in such a way that you stop seeing the presuppositions of the narrative. And to be honest with you, culture works that way. You can't question your culture and live in it at the same time. A bit like a game of chess. You can't, at the moment uh, you move a chess piece and the other person goes, wait a second, this is not a horse. This is not a knight. This is just a piece of wood, right? I question the fundamental presuppositions here. The moment you stop playing the game and start questioning it, you can't play it. You have to buy into the logic that this particular knight, this particular piece of wood represents a bishop. This particular is a queen, da-da-da. It's only once you've bought into the rules, the presuppositions of the game, can you really start enjoying it. And I think the story is doing something really fascinating here. It's dropping us mid-story into something, right? And in order for us to be able to enjoy the story, we just buy into the fact that this sort of power dynamics exists between this capricious, hardworking, this hard-tasking master and these three servants, or more problematically slaves. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what I think undercuts that reading of the talents being God's forgiveness or God's grace is <laughs> and the, the narrative. Firstly, the, the reference to why don't you just go and give this to the uh, moneylenders and just generate um, passive income interest on it. Well, how is that investing in the kingdom of God? Right. So the, that's yeah. the first. It, and and that, that's
0: explicitly sin for yeah. Jewish people like that's exactly right there's something yep. not
1: quite right here and the second right. thing that i think really gives it away is the narrative itself here is a person right if if the talents represent infinite mercy right then the master kicking this person out onto the curb all alone <laughs> wailing, it, it undercuts the very idea of mercy i have so much mercy to give get the hell out you didn't share my mercy with anybody get the hell out of my house <laughs> right it, it, it there's a there's a dissonance in the narrative and reading it that way and i know it in, I think you guys are right. I didn't really think about it this way. If you think this is a kingdom parable, you have to find a way to make it ethical, right? right you have right, to yeah. squeeze some sort right. of ethical practice into it. You have right. to say talents really represent grace or uh, forgiveness. But then the narrative undercuts that and says, uh, yeah. so this is a creature who has infinite grace and infinite forgiveness, but is, uh, won't, won't forgive this one servant or slave for not doing what they were asked to do and is now going to be kicked out. That sounds to me not like a God of infinite
2: love and mercy. That sounds like a human being. Right, right. Yeah. But the the irony is, is that I think, unfortunately, some already view God as a harsh, demanding, yes. right, <laughs> divine figure in that sort of way that actually reconfirms already yeah. um, that particular reading of it, rather than questioning and trying to find this merciful, loving God um, that's actually Um, has a prophetic critique to the unjust and oppressive systems that we live in. Uh, Which goes right back to what
0: Akram was saying at the start, that if people stay fearful, they're easy to control and there's nothing Mm. quite as threatening as a God whose position towards us, God's countenance towards us, God's response to us is Unconditionally, unfailingly, like what we see in Jesus.
1: Yeah, and, that, and this is actually, and this is really confronting because, uh, and this gets me to the story of the Grand Inquisitor, right? Because in that story, ah. what uh, we're really being told is, what do human beings really want? Do they want freedom from suffering, or do they want freedom itself? You see, we were offered freedom itself, and at any given chance, right? We we're willing. Like, no, 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 no. What we really want is freedom from suffering. We don't want choice. We don't want. Um, we don't want the capacity to be able to choose. Take it away from us, right? And we would happily submit ourselves to your control. Uh, and at least we know somebody's in control. Uh, yeah. we, we would happily give that control up to you. And here, the narrative is telling us, uh, look what happens when you put somebody like this in charge. Or look what happens when you... Uh, there's a really good idea. It's called um, uh, pre-prepared obedience or uh, uh, pre-arranged uh, obedience. Basically, the idea that you, you're you ready for obedience even before the command is given.
0: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: And you've already given up that capacity for critical thinking and for uh, thinking for yourself. Because... Th- I think if we were given the capacity to think for ourselves, then surely these resources, right? These scriptures were meant to furnish that agency with the appropriate resources for it to make ethical choices and for it to come to terms with the fact of its own freedom. Right. Uh, I think having yeah. a really horrible God is really easy because if God is indeed this horrible monster, this sky bully, right, then to be honest with you, why am I expected to be any better, right? Uh, God is really bad, right? And to be honest with you, there's times where, you know, it's very easy to think that way. If, this, if God is cruel, capricious, if the, old, if the Almighty is that way, then surely it's okay for me to be that way too. And if right. the God is really controlling, right, and doesn't give me freedom, then you know what? It might be okay for me to do that to other human beings, to mm. exercise that dominion over them. Uh, and going at perhaps even a level deeper than this, um, I kind of think of God or God figure or whatever we want to call that divine entity uh, as an entity who's sitting in a garden, who is crying, who's absolutely weeping their eyes out. Um, mm. And uh, you ask this entity, uh, why are you crying? Uh, and this entity would go for the suffering you're about to go through. And this is the sort of suffering that you have caused to others and others will cause to you. Because if I am this finite creature, and I'm a pretty selfish guy, I'm not a good person, I'm an okay person, right? And I break down to the suffering of other people, right? And it's too hard for me to see, so I turn away. Imagine an all-knowing God who has access to infinite empathy and access mm. to all the suffering on this planet and the suffering, needless want and suffering that we cause to one another. How much would that creature suffer? Right. Mm. If you have if if God had a the same level of empathy as me and had infinite knowledge of everybody who's suffering right now, even mm. the infinite would buckle under that much suffering. Right. And, mm. and uh, then the Christian tradition for me would ask,
0: so what's the Come point? On, go of there, Akram. Akram, right? you're preaching. Take us there. Take us to the cross. Go. So, <laughs> uh, and my response. So the the
1: secular person, or rather, the materialist will say, "So what good are God's tears, right? <laughs> mm. Why doesn't He come down?" And and just like in the three uh, temptations, right? Just take take control from us and um, and take freedom from us and give us. Uh, a, a save us from suffering, and mm. the response would be something to, akin to like this: It is only it's when our tears mingles with God's, right?
2: Mm.
1: It's only yeah. in that water can we wash our wounds. Wow! Right? Come on, akram Wow! The idea that our wounds—it's—it's it's in the tears of those around us and of God's, right? That we wash our wounds. It's the only—it's the only thing that cleans the wounds and allows them to heal. Um, that for me is. That's what, that's what spiritual uh, nurturance is all about. Do you remember Richard uh, uh, Raw, who said um, uh, spirituality was, is what people do with their wounds? Yes. That's, that's where it comes back to. And if yes. I was going to uh, last point about uh, critiquing the economy, yes, that's definitely why we need a religious tradition um, to, be a, to critique it, not to replace it, but to cr- constantly be critiquing uh, applications of power. I think we also need a spiritual tradition because we don't right now have a good public mechanism for dealing with our wounds, with our collective wounds and with our individual Mm. wounds. We need those rituals that deal with pain in a public manner because our private resources are not sufficient to deal with the suffering that we experience, the grief that we experience. Right, Our suffering quotient is actually quite small and we mm. don't have internal private resources internal enough psychological resources because the only way you can really survive the suffering of this life is to be callous to it right to be yeah. callous to your own suffering and to be callous to become callous to the suffering of others yeah it's pre- precisely here that you need good spiritual traditions right that furnish you with the public rituals you need right to wash your wounds in the tears of the spiritual in the tears of your community and in the tears of the divine whatever that may look like for you, that uh, the fact that we're not doing that, I think we're starting to see the consequences of that. We threw out a lot of the bad stuff with public religion, right? And there's so many deep problems with, and I've seen that in Afghanistan uh, where public religion um, becomes another domain of politics, right? Uh, Another domain of controlling people and their bodies. But when you throw all of that out, you don't want to also throw out those parts that are deeply nurturing to the community as well. So that that's why for those two reasons i still think we need a spiritual tradition like the ones that you guys are part of
0: hmm akram that's that's yeah. phenomenal and yeah the only thing that sounds slightly better than that for me is mm-hmm. entering into the joy of tony soprano here in this text um, yeah by actually investing <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. But like the the joy, the joy of the mafia boss in this text, um, yep. or or the Godfather, or the Tony Soprano yes, yes. kind of figure, th- yes. that's what we're offered instead. And it's a joy that comes yes. at the cost of others. Instead of um, who wants to stand in the darkness with yes. Christ yes. and weep with yes. him as he weeps yes. over Jerusalem? Yes. Like, who who actually wants to enter into that?
1: And Is that not the world upside down? Because those yeah. are precisely the, everything in my culture and every culture I've ever lived in said that those people are not even worthy of your attention, let alone empathy or time. And here yeah. we have a tradition that says that's where the kingdom of God is.
0: Man, if that doesn't flip the world upside down, I don't know what will. Mm. Oh man. And yeah. Yeah. this is what I hope our listeners are, are leaving with is just the, uh, like even dare I say a plain reading of the text, knowing that, if you've spent any time in Matthew's gospel or you're just going to read about like the the sheep and the goats and the coming Mm. of the son of man in glory just after this, Jesus' listeners would naturally, even if they don't share his agenda, have a problem with tax collectors. This is the very dynamics of tax collectors. They would have a problem with money lenders. This is the story of money lenders. When the temple was ransacked in 70 AD, uh, when um, the Judeans rose up against the Romans, the first act that was um, uh, done was to burn the temple oh, right. records of debt. Right.
2: Of the debt, debt is the right. biggest issue. Oh, that right. what
0: is in everybody's mind as they listen right. to this story is we are suffering under usury, under mm-hmm. debt. Usury is sin. Lending at like the expense of others is sin. Uh, defrauders are who were the victims of. Um, and no one would hear this story and think, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Oh, I could get it. No one gets a talent. No one's going right. to come to you and give it. Dear listener, I love you dearly, but no one's going to come and give you $2.5 million for you to do something creative with. Everybody hearing this in the Jewish context um, would hear it and go, that's what they did to me. Not I could right. do it to somebody right. else. Right. And then you, then you consider Jesus' ministry that it's not for the righteous, but for sinners come to Mm. seek and save the lost. Um, uh, The way that, you know, it's it's actually Jesus has in focus the scribes and the Pharisees and says, actually, you know, um, sex workers are going to get in on God's future before you do. The kingdom Mm. belongs to them. And then this God is thrown into the darkness of both Good Friday, Holy Saturday, before the strangeness of a very quiet revolution on Sunday. Akram, I think you've done a beautiful job of yeah. opening up um, a, a potentially dangerous passage to turn our world upside down.
1: Yeah. My pleasure, mate. It's my pleasure. And the the beautiful thing about it is, um, it's it, uh, as, a, as a sociologist, right, it's helping me connect with you guys. The, these passages, in some ways, are carrying on their own from a sociological perspective. They're binding us together. They are, um, they're allowing us an opportunity for fellowship, for intellectual fellowship. Right. And for bonds of affection to be forged. Right. Uh, While we discuss it, while we learn from each other. So there's something um, within the macro story, there's a lovely micro story, right. Of me being able to spend this time with you
2: guys. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure, Drew. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, right. Yep. Yeah, thank you, Acker. And I think that's your modeling, um, what I hope as the church we can um, continue to grow at, right? The giving yeah. and receiving and sharing with others um, outside of our tradition and entering into the worlds of others and the traditions and uh, frameworks of others um, empathetically, but also um, seeking to share and learn and to be changed in the process of that. And so I think yes. even yes. what you're modeling is really powerful that... I hope you know the church has not always been great at that, uh, but I think that. Uh, oh, sorry. You go. No, but I, yeah, I I I pray that you know we will continue to grow, to learn, to be transformed by others, and not to see that as a threat. Um, and I do think also just again about just what you've shared with us with this text. I mean, this is certainly one of a key passage that's used to domesticate um, the mm-hmm. Jesus story, right? And so, yeah. um, so just even. Um, Just walking us through this text is just helpful for uh, I know countless folks who've only heard it in the, you know, investor theory sense of it. Right. (laughs) Um, And so undomesticating um, and recovering the revolutionary liberative uh, reading of this text is really important. So thank you. My pleasure. Genuinely, my pleasure.
0: Beautiful. There's um Yeah, I'm just looking over the text in light of what you're saying. And this is exciting for me, Akram. You're welcome back to explore another text anytime, mate. This has been a a, a lot of fun. Um, You have been like the the anti-hero in this story who, and you mentioned right at the start around um, planting. I I wonder if there's almost some, um, you know, uh, farmer humour in this parable Mm -hmm. that the, the servant actually buries and yeah. as you were talking, nothing grows from it. it like, I put it in the ground. And, yeah. and, and he says, I, I knew that you were a hard man. That, yes. that same term is the term like um, uh, skrelos in, in the Greek um, is the word that in the Septuagint is used to pharaoh. Is that right? So here's the, hard the term- man. The, yeah, harsh man or I knew you were a harsh man is, is a different translation, but this is the same term for Pharaoh. And so here we have this character who's like a whistleblower who is unmasking the master's wealth is entirely derived from exploiting workers. Wow. And this is what they crucify Jesus for. So yeah, mate, thank
1: you for revolutionary. introducing us. Yep. Yeah. To, Politically, uh, he's very
0: revolutionary. That's right. And that only makes sense of Good Friday. Um, right. if, if he is not the hard man revealing um, uh, the divine as this uh, callous, harsh, punitive. Mm. But if, if what Jesus reveals is not as compassionate as your dog, Akram, uh, I, think, um, I think we're all in a safest place because we can control we're used to that kind of stuff.
2: Yes, so, uh,
0: yes. I, I'm, as you can hear, I, I'm brimming. This has been incredibly enjoyable for me. Thank you so much, Akram. Oh, if people would like to uh, um, f- follow you or uh, find out what you're up to, what's the best way that people can? Uh... I'm terrible. I'm notorious uh, for being uh, for getting in touch with. Part of the reason is in order to for my
1: work, I I need lots of uninterrupted digital time. Uh, honestly. Uh, uh, I, it just has to be face to face. We have to run into each other.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I'm well, so bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, let's hope uh, we, we should uh, do a face to face sometime once uh, all, all our social distancing um, lifts. Yes, that's right, because I have no digital
1: presence. Um, <laughs> Yeah. and I'm terrible I'm really really bad at that stuff um, I need another human face so if, if anybody ever wants to get in touch with me it has to be a long term project let's map it out in a year and hopefully we'll run into each
0: other well brother this has been fantastic thank you so my much pleasure.
1: my yeah. pleasure it was lovely talking to you both and looking forward to our next conversation
0: The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com inverse.